Welcome to Today in Space, episode 317, and here's what we're talking about. A whole bunch of stuff for human space flight, major, major space events, Galactic 2, Virgin Galactic's first full civilian mission, and second, uh, op- full operational mission, Crew 7, which is the continuation of the commercial crew program, and a whole international crew just flew on a Falcon 9, which the first booster landed, and docked to the International Space Station. And the ISRO just landed their moon lander, the fourth country, India, to do so, to land on the moon, and the first to land near the South Pole. And we'll talk about what each mission is, who's involved, and why it's important, not only for the space industry, but for humanity and progress for all of us to build a fantastic future. So buckle up, let's get started, and thanks for joining us on Today in Space. All right, folks, our first segment for this week, let's talk about Galactic 2. Now, this is Virgin Galactic's second mission operationally, right? They've been doing test flights. Richard Branson flew on the first uh, test flight, and they were grounded for a while because the FAA saw, saw something that didn't quite look right. And now they're up and running, and they took their first private astronauts into space with Galactic 2. And there were a lot of really important uh, historic accomplishments in space, milestones, and it's another example of what these edge-of-space flights uh, can do. And if, if you're new to what Virgin Galactic is, uh, very, very simply, there are there is Spaceship Unity, which is where the crew is, and then there's another basically double-wide uh, airplane that carries this up and then the spaceship gets dropped and then unity lights its engine the crew goes up and does a short stint in zero g above the carmen line and then comes back glides down and then floats into the runway like the space shuttle did and can use spaceport america in new mexico as the place that it launches plays around above orbit and comes back So this was the second time, and there was a lot of firsts on this mission. So I'm going to take a huge breath, just like Jim Carrey in Ace Ventura, and try and go through these as fast as possible. Here we go. I thought you'd never ask. Galactic 2 flew private astronauts John Goodwin from the United Kingdom and Keisha Shahaf and Anastasia Mayers from Antigua and Barbuda. Galactic 2 achieved the following. The first female astronauts from the Caribbean, the first mother-daughter duo to go to space. Most women flown in a single space mission, youngest person to go to space, the first Olympian to go to space, first majority female space flight, the sixth and seventh black woman to go to space, the second person with Parkinson's to go to space, the third oldest person to go to space. And in flight facts, they... Took off at 8.30 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time. The altitude of the released was 44,300 feet. The apogee was 55 miles. The top speed was Mach 3. And the landing time was 9.30 a.m. So an entire hour of being up there and then going to the edge of space and coming back. Uh, and essentially, the mission is, you know, a few minutes. As far as how much time you spent in zero G, a very short amount of time. But it's an opportunity that now exists that was not available for anybody. And Virgin Galactic, along with what Blue Origin is doing with the new Shepard capsules and those trips to the edge of space and back, 
these are all like these first steps of flying into space and making this commercial, just like we have airplanes, right? So the reason why this is so important, other than all of the amazing um, groundbreaking and historical markers that have not been done, and, and this is such a great opportunity for people who are not just white American men who are in the military, that are test pilots, right? That's NASA astronauts were there, and now we're expanding that scope to include more and more people. And so to see the first majority female space flight of all time happen, only the sixth and seventh black women to go to space, and like the first mother-daughter duo to go to space, there's so much room for breaking records that don't exist yet in space. So, so there is fertile ground for progress, but also from a space perspective, you know, I have the opportunity to share this at work when uh, I'm when these things happen, it's, it's a pretty cool thing to like share that with a bunch of people, especially engineers. And, you know, of course people are talking about how much it actually costs and how much per minute it is. And, and basically it's $450,000. There's some stuff online that states this. It doesn't, Virgin Galactic just doesn't say it out loud, but $450,000 for the price of this ticket. Keisha and Anastasia are there because they won one of the free first free tickets for the first private astronaut launch. But $450,000 for a few minutes in zero G, it really starts making you wonder, okay, how much, how does this compare to the early flights of planes? You know, planes were a military asset and vehicle before it became something that we could all fly and buy a ticket tomorrow and fly basically anywhere in the world, or at least from country to country or within a country, right? That is commonplace and somewhat affordable in most people's uh, salaries, especially if you need to make that trip. Uh, there's some way that you can make that happen. For space, that doesn't exist. These are the first steps of that kind of thing happening. And if you think about what the first planes commercial flight for airlines cost back in the day of when this happened. This is the, you know, 19, we're talking 1914 to, you know, 1927. These are the early years of flight and essentially one ticket, one commercial ticket to fly on an airplane would have cost someone the same amount as a car and a brand new car for one ticket one way. And so when you think about $450,000 for a ticket to go to space, that lines up very well with the expectations of technology technology progression for spacecraft and people going to space regularly. So Virgin Galactic, Galactic 2 is very important because not only is it groundbreaking progressively from uh, breaking records of humans going to space of all walks of life and backgrounds, but it's also showing us the early stages along with uh, New Shepard and what Blue Origin is doing. It's the first steps of this happening. So the more that these flights happen, uh, the technology will get better and safer, and then eventually the price will come down, and there's the opportunity that a lot of us who are alive today will be able to go to space or have the opportunity to, even though it might be pretty expensive, uh, from going from, it might be expensive to going to space, 450,000, you bring that down to 45,000. I think that's my price. 
What's your price? What would you pay to go to space right now on one of those Carmen line uh, jumps above the edge of space? Let us know in the comments or hit us up on social media. We want to know what you think. Again, 45 grand for me. What is it for you? Comments. Do it. Folks, let's take a quick break from the episode to talk about the new merch. That's right. Today in Space Merch, the Starship pen is done. And here you're seeing all three versions of what we have. RUD and black. The Galactic Cube Blue and the Terraform Green. These are the hexatubes that hold your Starship pen in there. And we've been doing some work to make sure that they ship without moving around so they're not damaged in the process and so that you can bring this around. And another addition here is the Starship Tower horizontal display stand, which hooks right around the existing hexatube and allows you to space nerd out in all your glory and have the pen with you at your desk, wherever you want this to be. And once you're using it, you can put it on display. That's what was missing when we had the first prototype out there. But every order will get this whole thing. The price is still $65, even with all these improvements. And because you're listening to the podcast, there is a discount code. Discount code is RUD23 for 25% off the $65. If you're in the U.S., free shipping. Go to ag3dprinting.etsy.com. Look for the Starship pen. Pick your Hexatube color and get one of these Starship pens. It's a great way to support the podcast and it's really the first premium merch we've done here. So every Starship is unique. It'll come with a part card that will have your Starship number, your unique Starship number. So order today, get free stickers, and all of this amazing premium stuff for your space nerd needs. Thank you for all your support. It's ag3dprinting.etsy.com. RUD23 for 25% off and free shipping in the U.S. All your support means everything, and this helps us do a whole bunch of other stuff. But without further ado, let's get back to the show. Up next, we got to talk about Crew 7, which just launched on August 26th. 3.27 a.m. it took off Eastern Daylight Time. And it was a beautiful launch, obviously dark, but clear nonetheless. And the Crew 7 astronauts all docked today as we're recording this, August 27th, and they're with their crew on the ISS. So what is Crew 7 and, and like what is this? So this is the continuation of making sure that there's crew available for the International Space Station. Now, the commercial crew program was NASA's way of having the private industry help us build a human-rated spacecraft that would allow the U.S. to launch our own astronauts and others from American soil with American rockets and spacecraft, and that happens to be for Crew 7, the Falcon 9 from SpaceX and the Crew Dragon spacecraft. So the commercial crew program is what reignited America's ability to launch our own astronauts into space, and it couldn't have come at a better time as the global conflict with Russia and Ukraine. Russia has taken the Soyuz, in some cases, off the map, and it makes you wonder what would have happened if America didn't have its ability back in this timeline. But luckily, we're in the timeline where America is thriving in space. And Crew 7 is no difference, and what's great about the space station in a time where war is around the corner and things are very, very chaotic. 
the space station and the international partnership that still exists from partnership that was built decades ago. The space station is our beacon of hope, and it places an example of human beings, regardless of their country's backgrounds. On the International Space Station, you are all working together to survive. There are no borders up there. It is, you're all on the same spacecraft. And when it's small enough and contained enough and making yourself survive up there is a team effort, a lot of those things fall to the wayside and we find a way to work together. That's the beauty of the ISS and Crew 7 and these astronauts that are going up there. And every astronaut, every person on this is from a different space agency. So I believe it's one of the first, but a great example nonetheless of what we can do to show the world um, that we can all still work together in space, this Crew-7 is what we're talking about here. So the four astronauts on board, Jasmine Mogbelli, it's her first trip into space after being selected as a NASA astronaut in 2017. The New York native earned a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering with information technology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts, MIT and a Master's of Science in Aerospace Engineering from the post Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Mogbelli is a helicopter and Marine Corps test pilot, badass, has more than 150 combat missions and 2,000 hours of flight time in over 25 different aircraft. She's also a graduate of the U.S. Navy Test Pilot School in Patuxent River, Maryland, a mission commander, she will be responsible for all phases of flight from launch to re-entry, and she will serve as an Expedition 69 and 70 flight engineer aboard the station. You can follow Astro Jasmine on at Astro Jaws on X slash Twitter. Andreas Mogensen was selected to as an ESA, European Space Agency, astronaut in 2009 and became the first Danish citizen in space after launching aboard a Soyuz for a 10-day mission to the space station in 2015. As the pilot of Crew-7, he will be responsible for spacecraft systems and performance. Aboard the station, he will serve as Expedition 6970 flight engineer. Mogensen is from Copenhagen, Denmark. He completed undergraduate studies and received a master's degree in aeronautical engineering from Imperial College London in England before gaining his doctorate in aerospace engineering from the University of Texas at Austin. Mogensen has since served as a crew member for NEMO, NASA's Extreme Environment Missions Operation, an underwater simulation mission, Mission 17 and 18, Mogensen was the European astronaut liaison officer to NASA's Johnson Space Center from 2016 to 2022, working as a Capcom for astronauts aboard the station and as ground support for spacewalks, relaying tasks and direction from mission control to the spacewalkers. You can follow him at astro underscore Andreas on X or Twitter. Satoshi Furukawa will be making his second trip to space, having spent 165 days aboard the space station as part of Expeditions 28 and 29 in 2011. Furukawa is from Kanagawa, Japan, and was selected as a JAXA, Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency astronaut in 1999. He's a physician and received his medical degree from the University of Tokyo and later a doctorate in medical science from the same university. 
Furukawa served as a crew member on the 13th NEMO mission and later was appointed head of JAXA's Space Biomedical Research Group. Aboard the station, he will become a flight engineer for Expedition 69 and 70, and you can follow him at Astro underscore Satoshi on X or Twitter. And finally, Konstantin Borisov will be making his first trip to space and will also serve as mission specialist, working to monitor the spacecraft during the dynamic launch and entry phases of flight. He entered the Roscosmos Cosmonaut Corps as a test cosmonaut candidate in 2018 and will serve as a flight engineer for Expeditions 69 and 70. Now, that's a great example of, again, international partnerships and giving examples of us working together to build a better life and survive, in this case, in the harsh environment of space. Now, the first stage of the Falcon 9 was a brand new Falcon 9, uh, Block 5 B1081.1, and it launched from the famous LC-39A at Kennedy Space Center, and the first stage did a great job of launching and landing after setting the crew into orbit, and then the crew, as they were docking back in, had to go to the Harmony module, so they were actually had to go above the station and dock on the other side. So we got to see some cool views. Um, it was very interesting because it, usually when they're on the dark side of the orbit, you know, sunsets and sunrises every 45 minutes, right? So usually when it's dark, the feed will just cut out because there's really nothing there. But uh, it came back in and it, it almost looked stormy. It was really interesting. Um, it looked like you were docking into some really wild uh, deep sea dock uh, it was very interesting to see that kind of dichotomy of the space and the deep sea environment. Um, but it was a cool, unique view that we don't usually get to see. And it's always fascinating to watch spacecraft dock and, and what Crew Dragon does and what these future uh, human-rated spacecraft are going to be able to do automatically. The crew basically gets it to a certain point in orbit and then the spacecraft does the rest of the docking and it has hold points where it can, you know, uh, as it's speeding up so that it's the same speed as the space station, then it can make tiny moves to get in and out towards the dock. They use lasers to align everything. It's, it's pretty wild. Um, but it's always uh, an amazing thing to watch. So crew seven is on board right now and we wish them an amazing time in orbit and a very safe splashdown on the return home. And last but certainly not least, we have to talk about India's soft landing on the moon with Chandrayaan-3. Now, Chandrayaan-3 is India's mission, their third attempt at getting themselves to the moon and analyzing next steps for humans to go. And, and India has had a space program that has been growing for a very long time. And about three and a half, four years ago, we were following the Chandrayaan-2 uh, mission where they were trying to soft land on the moon on the South Pole, very close to where they landed here with Chandrayaan-3, and unfortunately had a mishap where the lander ended up hitting and impacting the surface of the moon. And the moon, in general, is a very difficult place to go and to land. We don't know that much about it. Most of the landing sites that were used in the early, um, you know, 
moon race years, the original moon race, you can see they kind of go across the equator of the moon, of the side facing us. Uh, since then, we've had China land on the dark, the far side of the moon, and we've had now Chandrayaan 3 land on the south pole of the moon, which that is where all of the lunar missions are going here when humans are going to go. It's going to be located at the south pole. And the reason for that is because the South Pole contains resources that are super important for human life, right? Uh, the ingredients for water, liquid ice, as well as different things that can be used for fuel, the same resource, as fuel to go back. Especially for a system like Starship, where you can go to wherever you're going, land where the resources are, mine them, extract them, make your fuel, and come back. That is why the South Pole is super important right now and why getting information about what's there is valuable. Now, the Chandrayaan-3 mission has a rover that will be investigating uh, the area to learn more information about what's going on. We're excited to see how that goes. But the big question for the Chandrayaan-3 mission and India soft landing on the moon, becoming the fourth country to ever land on the moon at all, never mind the first people to land on the south pole of the moon where all the action is going to be in the next few decades. They are the only successful ones other than China in recent history. And we're going to go over some of the other missions that have happened in recent history, even as, as soon as this past month that have failed. Um, to land on the moon, and there's some interesting trends on why they fail. So if we go back re in the most recent uh, attempt, Russia with Luna 25, which is the first mission to the moon since the 70s, since the last time they went with Luna 24, Luna 25 was attempting to land first before India, and unfortunately ran its issues. In the pre-land sequence, they were going to be making an orbital adjustment pre-landing, and it didn't happen. So the rover didn't have a chance to correct itself before landing to slow down properly and impacted the moon. And Luna 25 is no more. And they're not the only ones. iSpace uh, with the Hakuto-R uh, mission, they had a beautiful orbit and a descent. But then something happened between zero and five kilometers to the surface where they ended up believing that they had hit a ridge as they were coming across. And then the Hakuto-R mission estimated the final altitude that it needed to reach as much higher off the surface, five kilometers off the surface. So it actually performed all of the things, even the landing sequence, similar to what um, the Chandrayaan-3 mission just did, the Vikram lander. It did a nice soft hover and then touched down on the surface, well, iSpace's Hakuto-R did that, but stopped and hovered at five kilometers and then just free fell until it hit the surface. So that's another one down. Space IL, the Bereshit spacecraft, which was uh, one of Israel's uh, mission. Wait, this is a few years back where they were trying to land on the moon. Their gyros, their gyros ended up failing, which then cut the engine off about one to three kilometers above the surface and fell and impacted just like the last two. And so there are a lot of things that can go wrong in the approach to the moon. It's part of the reason why 
the Apollo missions and sending human beings to pilot this thing down was so important because how do you get a computer to know something that, that you don't know is wrong and be able to adjust for it where the pilot, the trained pilot can make adjustments based on what the sensors are reading or even use their own if they have to, which would be uh, almost a death sentence for almost anybody else. But when you look at an untouched surface of another body, it, it fractals. It doesn't look like you can just very easily, at least maybe there's a trained eye that can do this, but I can tell you, when you look at these descent videos and, and you see, it, it, it feels like it ends much sooner before it actually does, or there's still so much more to go because of just how just untouched and chaotic the surface is. And, and we see this with the last three attempts of landing on the moon where they failed and finding that surface is super hard. And th these are the things that need to be fixed before we go to the moon. But, but, the Vikram lander, Chandrayaan-3, the Indian Space Agency, the ISRO has figured out how to land on the moon and they did it uh, great. And they also failed. Like we said, Chandrayaan-2 had another issue where it, it impacted the surface of the moon and they learned from it. They, they made the mistake, they figured it out and they fixed it and they successfully landed and the rover touched down, rolled right off and out of the lander. I mean, they, they crushed it. So a huge shout out to India and their space agency and all the people of India for, for all the work they've done um, and how inexpensively they did this flying to space. You know, we have the SpaceX version of, of making space flight cheaper. And now we've got India's option of landing on the moon at a cost that is astronomically less than anybody else. Um, and the only other people to recently land on the moon have been China with their Chang'e 4 and Chang'e 5 spacecraft that Chang'e 4 went to the far side of the moon and is the only uh, object and thing to ever go to the far side of the moon. And Chang'e 5 is a lunar soil return mission and Chang'e 6 will do the same. And so they are investigating the different potential areas that might be of interest when settling up a colony or something in space and traveling there. So we have this big space race that it's Space Race 2.0, where the, the battleground of the moon, and I, I don't like that I said battleground, but it's the point of interest, right? The southern pole of the moon is where all of the activity on the moon is going to go, um, or at least where all the interest is, because if you're going to send humans there and you're going to build a base, you want resources, and the best place is the South Pole, the southern region. So we are going to see China, India, Russia's made a pass at it. We've got Japan and, and Israel. We know the U.S. has plans with Artemis, and the European Space Agency will be playing a part in that. Canada's Space Agency will have their astronaut going on Artemis II here to orbit the moon, it's a very exciting time for lunar exploration, for human exploration, and the race is on for a system that's going to bring humans there and back safely, and every time without failure. So we are seeing the groundwork of all of this play out before us. Very exciting times. I'm so happy to see India in this race and really making bringing another perspective 
to the space race here and a flair of it that we didn't see in the last space race. It was Soviet and, and, and American, you know, that was the last space race. Now we've got India, we've got America, Russia, and so many others, China. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. My hope is that we end up doing a similar ISS style partnership where we can all be on the moon and we're not doing some crazy Mad Max version of living on the moon. We want competition's good, you know. Hey, figuring out which way works is great. The way that is that India has done this is different than the way that China would have done it or Russia for that matter, right? So there is a lot to be excited about, a lot to come, and just a huge congratulations to the people of India. And my last thought is if you're an American and you don't think this is a big deal or you're wondering wondering why it's such a big deal, especially if there weren't humans on board, you know, this is uncrewed, just robotic, we have become really privileged in America that we've already had our moon landing. I mean, I can't tell you, there's probably 20% of the people that I talk to about space that almost immediately go into uh, moon landing denier stuff. Like we're we're so privileged that it's just commonplace to say, oh, well, they didn't do it. It didn't happen. Um, this is India's first time touching on another planetary body, another surface that's not Earth, outer space, another place they've landed successfully. If you don't think that does something to the psyche of a people, to how far people will dream and, and have their own expectations, I think... I think we're in need of that kind of hope and and dream amplification, right? That's one of the beautiful things that science and space in particular provides is it's the infinite frontier, right? doesn't matter how far you can aim for, there's still more and you still might not even make it that far, but you keep doing that. You keep reaching farther and further every single time. You will find yourself in a place you never would have imagined. So, for India, for a country that's trying to um, put itself on the world stage and and be a leader globally, this is the kind of thing that is out there and and could transform the future in ways we don't even understand. So um, that is why the Shenryan 3 mission is so important and is probably going to be a ripple effect that makes Space Race 2.0 maybe 2.5, <laughs> uh, a big a big thing because of their success here after many failures. And I think that's the perfect amount of motivation, that it's hard, it's difficult, not everyone can do it, even people that have done it before, like Russia, can't just redo it. It's a good lesson that you really, really need to work as hard as you can and work together as a team. So it was beautiful to see all those smiling, excited faces as they realized they actually did it. That is the power of space and exploration, and I cannot wait to see them launch some human beings out there. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining us for this three-parter of news in space travel and human space travel. We are living in some really exciting times. So um, let us know what you thought. If you haven't already, follow us, subscribe to us here on the YouTube channel, or subscribe to us on whatever podcast player you're listening to us, Spotify, Apple Podcast, whatever it might be. We really appreciate it. Give us a five-star review if you're on Spotify. 
And as always, you know, check out our 3D Printing Lab AG3D, where we have our merch, we have our Starship pen, which uh, we cannot wait to get in some of the hands of you folks out there. And we've made some adjustments. We'll have a little thing on that soon about the upgrades, but it's very fun, and it's a good way to help support the podcast and get something sick that's space merch. So... Be well, spread love, spread science, and we'll see you on the next episode of Today in Space. See ya.